Welcome to the Failsafe. A podcast about writing and failure. On this, our inaugural episode of The Failsafe, I talk with Garth Greenwell, author of the novel What Belongs to You, about why failure is his favorite topic and why he thinks it's such an integral part of writing. I'm your host, Rachel Yoder, coming to you from Iowa City, Iowa, and this is The Failsafe, a new interview series where we talk to writers about failure. So this lovely rendition of Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy is by this performance art group that came into being in the 70s. It's called the Portsmouth Sinfonia. It was this group over in England, and it was an experimental music group. These students from the Portsmouth School of Art all got together and decided to play instruments with which they weren't familiar or else they just weren't musicians whatsoever. They recorded this amazing album of classical songs that are just completely butchered. And when I heard this, I knew it had to open up this podcast because it's such the perfect oral analog for the creative process. If the drafts of short stories and essays that I wrote were songs, they would sound like this. Just to give you a little background, the Failsafe is a joint effort of Draft, the Journal of Process, and the Iowa Writers' House. Draft is a journal that Mark Planzak and I founded in 2010. We publish first and final drafts of stories, essays, and poems, along with author interviews about the creative process. And you can find us at draftjournal.com. The Iowa Writers' House, founded by Andrea Wilson, is a community literary organization based in Iowa City that's dedicated to creating a space for education, support, and resources for writers. Find out more about them at iowawritershouse.org. So before we hear from Garth, let me tell you a little bit about his book. Like I said, it's called What Belongs to You, and it tells the story of an American poet living and teaching in Bulgaria, who meets a prostitute named Mitko in the public bathroom below Sofia's National Palace of Culture. Thus begins a complicated and very human, as Garth's going to put it in the interview, relationship between these two characters. I'm not sure if I can really say this on our first episode, but I'm just going to anyway. Come for the gay sex, stay for the gorgeous writing. It's an amazingly wrought, emotionally intricate, uh, visceral, and heart-rending book. I absolutely loved it. It deserves all the praise that it's received. 
And uh, believe it or not, you know, it wasn't all gold medals and fanfare as Garth spent the seven years working on this book. So he was gracious enough to share his wisdom about writing and the creative process and failure with us. And we're going to share it with you now. So without further ado, here's the fail safe. Wow. Hi, friends. Thanks so much for coming this evening. Hi, Garth. Hi, Nice to see you. So we're here tonight to talk about failure. Andrea and I both thought, who better to ask about failure than one of the most successful writers of 2016, Garth Greenwell. He wrote this brilliant novel called What Belongs to You, and Publishers Weekly called it the first great novel of 2016. Uh, In the New York Times book review, it was described as a rich, important debut, an instant classic to be savored by all lovers of serious fiction. The respected critic James Wood, writing for The New Yorker, says this novel, quote, inhabits conventional motifs in order to renovate them and is brilliantly self-aware. Greenwell's novel impresses for many reasons, not least of which is how perfectly it fulfills its um, intentions. It's been a huge success. You've been all over, Garth. When we asked Garth to come tonight, he very generously and very quickly said, yes, absolutely, failure is my favorite subject. (laughs) And so I kind of want to start there, Garth. Can you just talk a little bit about why is failure your favorite subject and why do you enjoy talking about it and how it's kind of shaped who you are? Well, I mean, first, thank you to everyone for being here and thank you, Rachel and Andrea, for having me. So failure is my favorite subject. And, you know, I think in large part that's because I think failure is just the necessary condition for the making of art. And I think there are a couple of reasons why that's true, the most important of which is that, I mean, making art is the attempt to make manifest an intimation of something that's ideal. I mean, it seems to me that sort of that that impulse to make art is a kind of glimpse of something that the minute you make it real, I mean, the minute you put it into form, you're necessarily making it smaller than that impulse that, you know, first made you want to attempt it. And so it seems to me that being an artist depends necessarily on a great tolerance for failure. I mean, I think it's impossible to make art unless you give yourself permission to fail every day. I also think, so that's like real failure. I mean, that's the real failure of the artist is to sort of constantly fail to find an adequate form for vision. And then there's also a kind of false failure which is what the artist's life often looks like. I wrote this book while I was teaching high school after having dropped out of a PhD program at Harvard. That program at Harvard was the first time my life had sort of looked like success in a sort of conventional way. It made my family very happy. And then when I left Harvard to teach high school, first in Ann Arbor and then in Bulgaria, that really looked like failure. I mean, by by any measure of conventional success and failure, that was failure. 
in part because we live in a culture that devalues the heroic art of high school teaching, and in part because there was a kind of willful turning my back on a career. But what looked like failure really wasn't because in the early morning hours before I taught, I was writing this book. And you know, I was writing these sentences that to me felt like my most authentic experience of myself, you know, not because I thought that I was going to publish them someday, I didn't. I mean, I, I wrote this book absolutely without any thought, without imagining it existing in the world. But because it was, it was the moment when I had my most authentic experience of myself and my most authentic experience of my own consciousness and, you know, living in a foreign country, my most authentic experience of my own language. And so, you know, that place of what looked like failure, it seems to me, is maybe the most interesting position for a writer to occupy. Like, I think all writers should be failures because I think when you're in that position of failure, you see the world in a more complex way. I mean, I think that there's a danger in success that success, it seems to me, and you know, this is something I think about a lot in America since America is a country that has to narrate to itself constantly its own success. I think success has a way of flattening out the world. I mean, when you feel like you occupy that position, there's a way in which the world becomes a much less complex place because it just looks the way, you know, you see it in a way that flatters you. And failure, I think, is a much more interesting position to look at the world from. As writers, part of our job is really kind of reframing and redefining failure. And you definitely did that in your choices you made. And we all are doing that every day in the choices we make. You had also, you know, mentioned that there's always like form is always this kind of way of reaching toward this ideal that will never be realized. And I'd love to, to hear a little bit about your book specifically. Um, you were writing it from this very specific time and place in your life. But how failure or the notion of writing from that space played into both the content of the book as well as your process in writing it? And this is going to be a huge question, so just feel free to, to address whatever part of it you want. But in, in, in one part, you know, the story that you're telling in the book, what does that have to do with sort of your own experiences of failure? And how did that sort of inspire what you were writing about in the book? And then also I'd love to hear about the process of writing it and sort of the challenges of writing it. Yeah, we'll just start there. I mean, so just to say very briefly, I mean, the, the book is about a relationship between an American teacher living in Sofia, Bulgaria, and a younger Bulgarian man whom he meets in these public bathrooms beneath the National Palace of Culture and whom he pays for sex. And the sort of main story the novel tells is this relationship between these two men and how what at first seems a very kind of uncomplicated transaction becomes very humanly messy. And it's a book that really does begin and end with a place. And that place is Bulgaria. And I mean, in a lot of ways, Bulgaria think, is thought of and thinks about itself as a failed country. 
I mean, the, the history of Bulgaria, I mean, first of all, it's a country that throughout its entire modern history has been occupied by foreign powers. It's a country whose fate in the world has been determined by forces larger than it. I didn't understand until I moved to Bulgaria what it meant to be an American. I didn't understand sort of how much of my sense of self was bound up with this assumption that I came from an important place, that I came from a place that could take for granted its significance in the world. And you know, in Bulgaria, I was teaching high school kids, Bulgarian high school kids, and teaching young people, I think, gives you a particular relationship to a place. I mean, there's a kind of, I mean, when you teach young people, you feel implicated in the place where they live. And I was teaching students who came from a country that they thought of as having kind of the most narrow possible horizon you know, of giving them the most narrow possible horizon of possibility for their lives. You know, I mean, my students felt that to stay in Bulgaria would be to fail or to go to school somewhere else and then come back. Like that meant to fail, to be in Bulgaria and be younger than 60 is in some sense to know that many people around you assume that your life is failure. Because it is the case that, I mean, Bulgaria has the biggest demographic, demographic crisis in Europe. In 1989, when communism fell, there were more than 9 million people in Bulgaria. Now there are fewer than 7 million. And that's because it is true that pretty much anyone who can possibly leave, leaves. And so if you're there, there's a sense that you couldn't make it somewhere else. And so that, you know, I mean, the book is a meditation on this place that I found full of richness and possibility and, you know, a kind of human wealth that is nevertheless sort of coded by this narrative of failure. And then there were also, I mean, there's a way in which I think the narrator of the book, who is this poet living in this place, teaching these, these students, he also sort of is in a position that both looks like and that also he may himself consider failure. And there are some kinds of, and then there are also a kind, there's a kind of more profound failure that happens in the book. Because the middle of the book's three sections is sort of different from the rest. The first and third take place in Bulgaria. They tell the story of this relationship in a fairly straightforward way. But then there's this middle section in which the narrator is thrust back into his childhood and into his memories of a, of a very traumatic childhood growing up queer in Kentucky in the early 90s. And that section is written as a single paragraph. It's a 41-page paragraph, which was not, you know, that was not something I willed. You know, it was something I felt kind of overwhelmed by. And I do think there's a way that that section sort of declares defeat in its formal choices. Because the minute you have paragraphs, you have an assertion that a writer or a narrator is enough in control of his or her material to organize it, right? But if you give up paragraphs, then you're sort of announcing from the beginning that the writer or the narrator is defeated by the material. And that was especially important in this book because you know this is a narrator who has been taught a single lesson about his life. I mean, he grew up in a place that taught him a single lesson about his life. 
Because as in Bulgaria today, so in Kentucky in the early 90s, to be queer meant that you were taught that your life had no value and your life had no dignity. And this is a narrator who feels a great deal of shame. And therefore, he's very attached to dignity. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, I think, it's a, I think the narrator has a lot of moral failings. And I think probably his biggest moral failing is this over-attachment to dignity. And he, I think he uses language because he's, he's attached to a certain kind of sentence and a certain kind of elegance in language and a certain kind of mastery of language that I think to him represents dignity. And in that middle section, that all falls apart. I'm really glad you brought up that middle section. I, I love that section. I think that really the creative lesson of that section, if there is one, is one that has to do with surrendering, right? Of letting go and letting the creative process take over and just kind of turning yourself over to failure and just saying, this is how it has to be and we'll just see what happens. And it works beautifully. I read in a recent interview something you said about that middle part, and I'd like to quote it here and then just ask you some questions about it, if that's okay. You wrote, it doesn't feel right to say that I chose to cast the middle section of my novel as a single 41-page paragraph. I wrote the section very quickly in a kind of white heat, mostly on the backs of napkins and receipts and other scraps of paper someone might mistake as trash. I numbered these as I wrote and put them in a pile, and it was only when I finished and typed them up that I understood the form of what I had made. Choice didn't enter at this point either, since I found the material of the section so difficult. For more than a year, whenever I tried to look at it, I felt physically ill. And that really, that line really struck me. And so I was really curious just about when you were working on that section, how you actually got through it day by day, how you actually approach something that's so kind of fraught and so present and so visceral on so many levels for you, how you kind of wrote through it and got to a place where you felt okay with it or you felt you had mastered it um, in some way. I mean, I don't think I ever mastered it. You know, it's true that I, so, I mean, for me to be able to write at all, I have to write in these very sort of cheap spiral-bound notebooks that they feel like a kid's school. But, you know, like, I look sometimes at, like, these, like, gorgeous leather-bound tomes that Thomas Mann wrote his books in, and I just think that would be, that would be death to me. Like, to, I have to feel like I'm, I'm writing in this sort of un, place of unimportance in order to be able to write. And it's true that that middle section, even those spiral-bound notebooks, were kind of too permanent, too formal. And I did, I mean, in order to access the material of this book, which, so I mean, the book throughout kind of plays with autobiography, but it is fiction. And I mean, and it's important to me that there's a kind of firewall between the novel and the life, but I've acknowledged that that middle section, even though there's a lot of invention and fiction in it, does cut really close to the bone. And there are moments, especially these kind of climactic moments where the narrator is rejected by his father. I mean, those are moments that are in places more or less transcribed. 
and I spent my entire adult life running away from, from that. You know, I left Kentucky when I was 16, and I've hardly ever gone back. And so, you know, it was terrifying. I mean, it really was terrifying and painful to sort of revisit that landscape. And in order to do it, I mean, first of all, doing it didn't feel willed. I mean, I've, I've said that I, I felt like I was seized by a voice, that it really was not an intentional thing to write that section. And then also to write it, I really did have to treat it like trash. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't, if a piece of paper was whole, I like, I was paralyzed. I couldn't compose sentences. I had to rip it into pieces in order to write on it. And I think that that, like treating it like trash, you know, was again a way of sort of just saying this is a fail, you know, this is not art. I'm not making anything permanent. You know, I am just, I'm accepting from the beginning this is failure. Like this is just a complete disaster from the start. And that allowed me to write. It's true that when I finished the draft of that section, it made me feel sick. I mean, there were, it was very different. It was much longer than it is in the book. I mean, that was the section that was revised most heavily. For a year, I would try to take it out and I would try to look at it and I would have to put it away because it really did just make me feel nauseous. And then after a year, I think enough time had passed, I was able to take it out and try to look at it. And I had to rewrite it from the beginning by hand. I think three times, which I didn't do with any of the other sections, like that intense of a revision, but I, it was, it felt like there was this kind of chaos on the page that I had to try to tame. And then it's also the section, I mean, I, I couldn't do that entirely by myself. It's also the section that was most heavily edited with, with my editor at FSG. And, you know, I needed that kind of external gaze to, you know, have a kind of objective view on what was working and what wasn't in the section. It was, I don't think I ever mastered it. I don't think I ever got to a point where I could really treat it entirely as craft in a way that I could the other sections. I think that's so interesting, the whole um, part of having to write it in these little bits. I had a professor once say that after he wrote something, if it was on the screen, typed up, it started to solidify and kind of harden. And it was really hard for him to break it back apart. And so I think it's just so interesting, this process of going back and having to sort of break it back apart by handwriting it out. Was that sort of your experience with it as well? Yeah. How long did it take you to write this book? Are there phantom sections locked away somewhere that, that no one will ever read? Was it a different story ever at a different point? No, it really wasn't a different story, and there aren't whole sections locked away. There is a lot that's not in the book, this is kind of another way of thinking about failure or thinking about a, a book as not being a kind of perfect object. I mean, perfect, which you know means in sort of the etymological meaning is entirely finished. Like that's what the Latin roots of it mean. And there's a way in which I'm drawn to writers who just don't think that's true about a book. Like I love writers for whom like the whole body of work feels kind of like one book. And, you know, there's a lot that's left out of this novel. And some of those things I'm exploring in what I'm writing now. And kind of the, which, you know, sort of 
you know, inhabits the same consciousness. Sometimes other characters, you know, characters who have minor roles in this book are having sort of major roles in the work I'm, I'm working on now. So that, there was a way in which there aren't, there are not sections that I removed from this book and hid away, but there are suggestions that this book makes about other experiences or other sort of territories of the narrator's experience that I'm exploring in other work. I mean, it took me four years, between three and four years to write this book. And I was writing it as I was working full-time as a high school teacher, which as some of you may know is a really consuming and sometimes very brutal job. And so, you know, for those years, I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning to write for two hours before I went in to teach. And that meant I was writing, you know, in the early morning dark, by hand in this notebook, so away from the computer, in Mlados, Sofia, in this place where if I wasn't teaching that day, I might not speak my language, or in the summer, I might go days without speaking my language. And all of that made writing the book the most profound experience I've ever had of privacy. And I think that was really crucial to being able to write the book because in that privacy, because I am someone, and I, I said this the other week in Prairie Lights, I feel like the, the sort of fundamental experience of my life has been humiliation. The life of a writer is a life of failure and humiliation. And in order for me to be able to tolerate that, I feel like I did need this space of absolute privacy where, you know, I went months or at times over more than a year without showing pages to anyone, even my closest friends. Or, and, and I never talked about what I was writing. You know, no one knew I was a writer, no one cared. And that allowed me to write the book. And, and something I feel really terrified about now and, and sort of the big anxiety moving forward is because, I mean, the idea after a life you know, I've, I've been writing for 20 years. And until three months ago, I was entirely invisible as a writer. And the fact that now there are people reading my book, you know, it's this very bizarre thing. And also it's a, it's a very sort of destabilizing thing. I mean, I'm so grateful for it. And it feels like a miracle every time I meet someone who's read my work, but it's also kind of profoundly destabilizing because the, the idea that maybe in some very small way, this book might be something other than a failure is really bizarre and scary because how will I get back to that place where I'm writing in privacy and anonymity and without any expectations when, you know, I know that there's an editor who will read what I write and who is even anxious to read it. That kind of what comes now or how do you kind of create that private space again is still a question. I'm guessing you're so busy you're probably not sitting down every day for a couple hours to write. One really great metaphor I came across in sort of my reading about creativity and failure, you had talked about you like this idea of a writer having this entire body of work that spans, you know, many books or um, many different pieces. And uh, in the Navajo culture, the weavers, Navajo weavers will often, have you heard of this? They often weave a spirit line into their, into their rugs or their blankets because they don't want their spirits to be trapped by a perfect pattern. So it's this little imperfection that they weave in. And it also shows them a way out of that 
and into a new project. So it seems like you might have some spirit lines out of this book, right? Like going into new projects. I also love that you write in the notebooks and that you rip things apart. Did you ever come to a point where writing the novel was really difficult or do you have any other kind of strategies that you've used ever for kind of getting out of a place of silence or a place of stuckness um, that have really helped you in the past? You know, a big part of the anxiety I feel right now is the fact that, you know, I'm doing a lot of talking, you know, these months, more talking than I've ever done in my life, but it's also the longest and most profound period of silence I've ever had as a writer. You know, and I feel further away from writing than I've ever felt in my life. For me, I mean, the saving grace for me is routine. Even though those, those years when I was waking up at 4.30 every day and then teaching eight hours of classes, they were really hard. I look back at them in this kind of romanticized way, which I know is false, but you know, just having those two hours every day where it kind of didn't matter whether I had a good writing day or not. It just mattered that I was there. You know? It just mattered that I, was, that I was not doing anything else. And so I didn't really feel, I mean, the, the one happy part of being a writer for me is when you're deep into a project or you're into a project that has some traction and you're just in that period of every day you show up and you do the work. I don't have a word, I never have a word count. Some writers say, you know, I'm going to write 500 words or whatever. I don't do that. I have a time count. And I say, I'm going to sit here for two hours. And it doesn't matter if I don't write a word. I just can't do anything else, which means you're going to write because it's so boring, you know, if you're just sitting there doing nothing else. But, you know, just that, that period when you're sort of slowly inhabiting a work is the only period for me in my life as a writer that's free of anxiety. Publication at every step is anxiety. I mean, you know, I kept sort of telling myself, a few years ago, like, oh, when I, get an, when I get an agent, I'll feel less anxious. It's not true. When I sell the manuscript, I'll feel less anxious. Not true. You know, if the book gets a good review, I'll feel less anxious. No, like, the anxiety is just there, you know? Like, I mean, I feel like the anxiety is just the experience of being an artist. I mean, being a writer, like, making something out of nothing, you're never sure if you're going to be able to do it again. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to write another book again. I won't know it until I'm sort of back in that space of writing. Maybe I'll never be able to write another sentence. Who knows, you know? There's no guarantee in the life of a writer. And certainly, you know, maybe I'll never write another sentence that will be published. I mean, you, there are just, it's a life, to be an artist is to choose a life without any guarantees. And so I feel like you have to sort of reconcile yourself in some way to that anxiety. And to me, I mean, the only strategy for making that anxiety bearable is showing up every day to do the work. And whether the work shows up or not is kind of out of your hands, you know? But you can show up and sort of be there for the work to happen. I was gonna ask you what you had to say to people who are listening to this who might be stuck, what one piece of advice, but I think that's it, you know? It's just, it's just showing up and doing the work making, stirring the oatmeal, making the clay pot, just every single day, it's just work. Well, and also to say, I think it's really important to remember that what looks like failure may not be failure. 
And that certainly, you know, those years when to my family and to many of my friends and to my mentors, it looked like I was really lost. I wasn't lost because I was showing up every day and working and, you know, working on this book for those hours. What failure means for a writer, I think, is you stop writing. Any kind of external failure or success is always an illusion. And I feel that very strongly in this moment where I have a book in the world and I'm traveling in support of that book. I mean, all of the external markers of success, they have nothing to do with the real value of the work. Anyone who cares about literature sees books that are extraordinary come out and sink without a trace and books that are mediocre be greeted with a kind of fanfare that in no way could they possibly merit. I really do believe that chance is the strongest force in the kind of visible success or failure of a book. And that means that's not real success or failure. It has nothing to do with real success or failure. The, what it means to fail as an artist, well, what it means to fail as an artist is to be discouraged and stop making. What it means to succeed as an artist, I think, the only thing we have control over is showing up to do the work and that means giving ourselves as many possible chances as we can to be lucky. So that's the only thing, you know, I, I feel like I'm in this period of a kind of luck that nothing in my life prepared me for and that in no way have I earned. The only thing an artist can do is show up and give him or herself as many chances as possible to be lucky. That's what it means to sort of live the life of art, I think. You're wonderful. Thank you so much for honoring us with all of this conversation about failure and about your work. I'm completely inspired. I'm completely on the same page with you. I wish you much more failure. Many more days of failing, failing better, as the old saying goes. And just thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Everyone. Garth Greenwell. What did I tell you? Pretty phenomenal. It was a really special treat to be able to talk with Garth. After we finished our conversation, I actually talked to a few audience members about their own experiences with writing and failure. And here's what they had to say. Do you even believe in failure when it comes to writing? I believe in it in the sense that Garth was describing. I think it's totally, I mean, I fail myself in writing all the time. Actually, I wanted to tell you that you should read this essay by Michael Cunningham. I don't know if you know it. It's called Lost in Translation. It was in the New York Times a while ago, and he talks about how every book is a cathedral of fire that you never erect the way you want to erect it. Um, and how, yeah, it's just like this flaming thing and the thing you actually write is like a terrible facsimile of your dream. Um, so That's a really good image. Yeah, it's a really good essay too. Something that I fail at with writing is um, trying to write about things that are incredibly difficult, that are incredibly emotionally difficult for me still, even 15 years later. Um, so um, they were having this thing where the take back the night thing where uh, 
it was in the Pentecrest in the University of Iowa, and there's um, sort of like this big green lawn in front of like the old Capitol building, this big old building with a golden dome, and there's probably like a hundred undergraduates sitting in the grass, and there's like a microphone set up, and students are coming up and telling their stories about surviving rape. I got up and talked because I think that I thought it would be important for a faculty member to, to get up and talk about this. Um, but for years, I've been trying to write about difficult experiences that I had when I was um, a teenager and I ran away and I was in an abusive relationship for like three years. And, uh, you know, I think that it feels like failure to not be able to to talk about it. And so that was sort of what I wanted. So I think that's, that's something that I still sort of come up against, um, is trying to be able to find words to talk about something that emotionally is still feels incredibly dangerous to me. But other than that, I just deal with the regular failure, which everybody else talks about. So. When I write these days, I write alongside children. I write to prompts that are given by volunteers that are so much fun and make me remember how much I love writing. And I wish that I could transfer that love to the novel project I've been working on. Because every time I look at that, I just see abject failure. Um, because I'm not working on it. Because it's something I turned in as part of my thesis. And there are these 160 pages just sitting there, just waiting for more, just waiting for their other half. And I feel as if I've abandoned my character, whom I loved so much. I understand. Here's one more thing about failure. Um, I think there was a time in my life when I was desperate for a conventional kind of success, as in selling a book. Um, and I worked myself really hard and gave myself a lot of deadlines, and I did complete the manuscript and get an agent and have it sent out and blah 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 but I feel like in a way I failed at that moment because I was working harder for the success or the like so-called success of the project than the integrity of the project um, so I consider that like attempt at success to have been a big failure if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. A huge thank you to Andrea Wilson and the Iowa Writers House for partnering with Draft, the Journal of Process, and yours truly to make this podcast a reality. Also, a huge thanks to Clinton Street Social Club, all of the staff there, and also to our launch event sponsors, my much more successful older sister, Ingrid Yoder, and Mark Palanzak's much more successful older brother, Dave Palanzak. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for listening. Find us online at thefailsafepodcast.com, find Draft online at draftjournal.com, and find the Iowa Writers' House online at iowawritershouse.org.